are what lies before us than we were before. So we pray, Lord, as we come to your word, let us not be dulled, Lord, let us not be blind, but let us be awake, let us be ready, let us be alert, and ready to receive all that you have for us today in your word. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 21 of Revelation. This is our final session today on the church. We've been doing a series called Church Unpacked since January. And today we are closing that series out with a sermon called The Future of the Church. So looking ahead towards what lies in front of us as the Church of Jesus Christ. So Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4. Then we're going to jump to verse 22. And we're going to read through to chapter 22 verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will need no lamp or light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. So one of my favourite preachers, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, Those who know their Bibles should not be surprised at the state of the world as it is. Those who know their Bibles should not be surprised at the state of the world as it is.
as it is. And I think the same is true of the church. That those who know their Bibles should not be surprised at the state of the church and also should know what lies ahead for the church. I'm a football fan. More's the pity. I grew up less than a mile and a half from Molyneux and so I had to, by the laws of football supportership, which are true and real, have to support my local team. So if you're in here today and you support a team you did not grow up, just know you are transgressing the laws of football supportership. Okay? Very serious. <laughs> uh, so I am a Wolves fan and I, every year, uh, catch up with all the pundits on TV and all of my favourite YouTube pundits as they begin to deliver their predictions for what they think will happen in the coming season. How many of you other football fans do that? You like to subscribe to um, football pundits and find out where they think your team is going to come. So before every season starts, they make their predictions. They, they take into account all of the transfer policy and business that's been happening, what's going on in the indoors of the club, what's going on behind the scenes, um, who they signed, how did they do last season, and they take all these factors in play and make a prediction about where they think each team will finish, who will stay up, who will go down, who will be crowned champions, who will make it to Europe, and each of us eagerly await whether those predictions will come to pass. Inevitably, Wolves are nailed on to go down this season, so I'm hoping that that prediction doesn't come to pass. But, what's the point of this? What am I saying? I'm saying this. We're not the same. Christians do not need to speculate about the future of the church. We don't have to play the same guessing game in terms of what will be down the line for the church of Jesus Christ. You see, we're in the position of having certain knowledge, actual information, solid factual information about what is to come in the future. About what is to happen to the world and about what is to happen to the people of God. Because it's been revealed to us through the Holy Scriptures. Sure, there are elements of the future that God has not chosen to reveal to us in the full. That's true, isn't it? You know, we don't know the exact number of people that will be in the church. God chose not to, to reveal that to us. We don't know how many exactly will be saved, ultimately. And, of course, as we looked last week in the book of Mark, none of us knows the exact time when Jesus will come back. So there are certain things that God has not revealed. However, he has revealed to us many truths, important truths about things that are yet to come. And as Christians, I want to encourage you today. Yes, we might be looking at things that are maybe a long way off for us, but they are very, very important for us here and now. They're very important for your faith. As Christians, we're called to live from the reality of our position as children of God, aren't we? We're called to live out our life 
from the fact that we are children of God, we are adopted into his family, and we are seated with him in heavenly places. And it's from that reality of being a child of God, of being born again in the Holy Spirit, of being reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5, that we are to live. We're not to live from an identity as, as a lost person, as we were in the past. We're to live from our identity in Christ, that I'm redeemed, that the Bible calls you in Christ, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's the reality that we're to live from, isn't it? That we are simultaneously righteous, simultaneously, yes, still sinning, still carry this body of flesh, I still war with my fleshly desires, but I live from the reality that I am being redeemed. That's how you've got to live, in light of who God has made you to be now. And just as that is true, that you're supposed to live from your adopt, sorry, you're supposed to live from your identity in Christ, it's also true that we are to live in light of what is to come. We're to live in light of the future. Your heart, your mind, the way that you think, the way that you reason, must be shaped more by the world that is to come than it is by this world which is passing away. Does that make sense? As Christians, we're supposed to lean into the future, look ahead to what is to come and say, okay, that's what's coming, therefore I shall live like this now, rather than thinking what has gone before. Right? We don't get shaped by what's gone before. I think there's a place, isn't there, of course, for telling your testimony, for going back to the past and sharing with others what God has done in your life. That's wonderful. But you're, of course, you're not supposed to live in the past. You're supposed to live from the future. Look forward to what God says will come to pass. And then live and so that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at what will come to pass. We're looking at the subject of heaven. The new heavens. The new earth. And I want to say to you, what you're going to hear today is very practical. Yes, it's theological. Yes, some of it's going to be a bit head-bending. But it is massively practical. For me, it's alarming today that so few churchgoers can stomach hearing the Bible preached. They find it boring. They find it's not very practical. It doesn't meet my felt needs. Sometimes I feel like that. But God has given His Word to us. And His knowledge is higher than ours, isn't it? He knows more than you do about what you need. And so as you feast today on the truths about what is yet to come, what God has said will happen to his church, know this, it is eminently practical. It is eminently practical. And it will strengthen your faith. It will meet felt needs. It will encourage you. It will strengthen you. It will help you to live faithfully for Christ in this day. So our expectations ought to be shaped by Scripture. Amen? We say amen? Your expectations of the world, of what is to come, of the church, of yourself, are to be shaped by Scripture.
by your feelings, not by the opinions of others, not by speculation, but by the word of God. So what does scripture tell us about the future? What lies ahead for the church? Well, I think there's two aspects to the future of the church. You can look at it from two different ways. There's the near future, this side of glory, and then there is the eternal future. Those are the two aspects. The near future, where we're still in this world, all that will come to pass before Jesus Christ returns. Amen. Christ is coming back. Are you ready? And then secondly, all that will come to pass in eternity. How many of you understand? If you're in Christ, you will live forever. Have you ever thought about that? The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. Well, if you're in Christ today, you will live forever. You will live for eternity. That just breaks my mind. I can't conceive of that. This is what the Bible says. So there's the near future aspect, and then there is the eternal, the eschatological future of the church. So let's take a look first at the near future. What do we know about the near future of the church? Well, firstly, we know from Scripture that the church will not be extinguished. The church will not die out before Christ returns. Many have been very bold in making predictions about the end of the church, haven't they? We've heard it before. I told you the story about the atheist philosopher Thomas Paine who wrote that book, The Age of Reason, back in the late 1700s. And he said, listen, within 50 years of my book going into print, the Bible's going to be out of print. Bold production. Bold, sorry, predictions. That never came to pass. And I remember being at university in the early 2000s. This really dates me now. When the book, The Da Vinci Code. Anybody read The Da Vinci Code? It was like the most popular book. And, and my friends literally thought this book was going to just destroy Christianity. Oh my goodness, have you read Dan Brown? The Da Vinci Code. Well, it just unlocks everything. It just debunks Christianity entirely. And, and at that time, my friends were making very, very bold predictions about the future of the church. But listen, the Bible tells us the church is going to be here right until the day when Christ returns. Even as he returns, there will still be Christians on the earth. So don't be discouraged by what you see. Don't be discouraged by what you see out in the world, especially in this nation. The rise of secularism. The demise of mainline denominations in this country. Do not be discouraged. The church of Jesus Christ can never be extinguished. Secondly, we know that the church is actually going to be successful. The church is going to be successful in fulfilling the Great Commission. I don't want to get too much into all the views of the end times as we just get bogged down. And I think it's one of those things that we can, to a degree, disagree. But what I do want to say is that the Bible is clear that the church will be successful in the Great Commission. How do I know that? Revelation 7, 9 and 10. Paul, sorry, not Paul, John, 
It's taken up in a vision. He's shown certain things that are going on in heaven, way in the future. And what he sees is a great multitude that no one can number. Now listen, from every nation. Did you hear that? From every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Doesn't that sound to you like the Great Commission? Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, it happens. It happens, brothers and sisters. The church in eternity will be a church of all nations. Amen? The church will be successful. Which for me is encouraging because there is so much when we look out in the world to discourage us, isn't it? But we will be successful in the end. Thirdly, one thing that will happen in the coming years is that deception, far from disappearing, will rise. This is a negative one, but it is promised by Scripture. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, that's deep stuff, isn't it? It's really deep stuff. When we think about what that means, they will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, to our Western minds, to our very British minds, we're like, hmm, teachings of demons? Really? Is that just hyperbole? Do you really mean that? Well, yes, it does mean The origins of false teaching are not man-made, but are demonic. The enemy, I want to say this, the enemy in these last days is going to be invested in trying to deceive Christians. It's what the Bible teaches. And he's going to be very active in loosing false, deceptive teachings into the church. This is just a sad fact of reality. And I think it's important to realize that these false teachings will masquerade themselves as being Christian. You know, deception is deceiving. Deception wouldn't be very good if we all just knew it was a deception. You know, if, the, if the enemy showed up in a red light pursuit with horns, we'd all know that's the devil. That's not how the devil rolls. The devil does what? He masquerades as an angel of light, or as a, in fact, the Greek there, angelos, can mean messenger, a messenger of light. Deception has its roots in the devil, and in the last days there will be more and more of it. So, we, as we read last week, we need to stay on God. We need to be in the Word of God. We need to know who our God is, know who we are, know our doctrine, and that is how we stay. True to him. So deception will rise. Fourthly, encouraging, we know that Christ promises that the church will move in the power of the Spirit. In the power of the Spirit. For me, I think this is one of the 
again, one of the deceptions of our day is that God no longer moves in power, no longer moves in the power of the Spirit. But Christ says that until the end, the church will be filled with and operating in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, 17 and 18, Jesus says, These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will cast out demons. This is what Jesus said. The church will operate in such supernatural power as they preach the gospel, but there will be warfare with demons. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So the church is going to move, continually until Christ returns, in the power of the Spirit. Does that mean we should go and find some snakes and let them bite us? Of course it doesn't mean that. Okay? Christ isn't saying this is a litmus test for every believer. What he's saying is that the church will be marked. It will be marked by supernatural activity. The church will move in the power of the Holy Spirit. For me, one of the greatest deceptions out there is the teaching of some that says that the devil can move in supernatural power, but Christians can't. For me, I don't think that can be true. I believe that the Spirit will be active, that the church will be active in the power of the Holy Spirit until Christ returns. However, trials and persecutions will grow. This is another reality that we must face up to. That Jesus didn't promise that the church is just suddenly going to move in prosperity and never have a problem again with trials. In a sense, I do believe in a gospel that is prosperous. Because listen, every single one of you is going to end up one day living in heaven. Where there's no lack. There's no pain, there's no suffering. So yeah, that kind of prosperity, amen. I think we should all say amen to that kind of prosperity. However, that is not promised to us here and now by Scripture. What we are promised is that though Christ will save each one of his elect people, he will bring all of his people through in the end, they will enter through many trials. And we will encounter suffering with this side of the Lord. Mark 13 says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the child will rise against his parents and, and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures till the end will be saved. Christ promises us, and the apostles promise us, that suffering is not for nothing. If you've read the book by Elizabeth Elliot, that suffering is never for nothing. I would recommend it. If you've not read it, please get a copy. It's an encouraging book. Peter says, doesn't he, don't find it strange when you experience trials. It's part of the Christian life. And God uses even those things. Romans 8, 28. God works what things? Some things, the good things, all things. God works all things together for good. To who? The whole world? No, to those who love God and are called according to His 
purpose. So you as a Christian, if you're a Christian in this place today, you can be confident that your God is going to work all things, not just some things, not just the things you find tasteful, but all things, even those times when you're walking through a valley, like we talked about earlier, you can even use that for good, to build you up, to strengthen you. So we will have those things happening in this life. However, 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. Now let's look, shall we, at our eternal future. Let's look at what is to come forever. If you're a Christian in here today, I want you to know that this is your future. This is our shared future. This is what God says is going to happen. And I don't know how, how long I've got in this world. None of us know how long we have. But the Bible speaks about life on this earth being like a passing breeze, like a breath. This life is just a drop in the ocean of eternity. This is going to be your home. This will be the place that you dwell and you shall be known for eternity. So let's look forward, shall we? So what is ahead in our eternal future? What is the church's future? Number one, the church will live forever. If you are in the church of Jesus Christ, you shall live forever. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all who believe on him might not perish, but have eternal life, possess eternal life. The church is the only human institution that is going to live, have eternal life forever. No other institution is going to have that. No Rotary Club is given eternal life. The church of Jesus Christ is an institution, a human entity that will go on forever. And knowing this, knowing that you will live forever, doesn't it just put this life in perspective a little bit? Secondly, this is perhaps one of the most beautiful things to me about what is to come. All divisions will be removed. All divisions will be removed. You see, it's not churches, churches that will have a future. Churches don't have a future. The church has a future. Right? Most of the time when you read the word Ecclesia in the New Testament, it's actually talking about this. It's talking about a local church gathering. But once or twice, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, it's capital T, capital C, the church. And it is the church, the universal church, the holy Catholic and apostolic church that has a future. Catholic meaning universal, of course. There's going to come a day when all of our logos, our branding, our banners, our YouTube channels, our websites, our buildings will end. That stuff's got a shelf life. We don't get to take our snappy mission statements to heaven. They'll all fade away with the passing of this world. 
And every boundary, every denominational boundary is one day going to be removed. There isn't a Pentecostal quarter in heaven. There is not a Presbyterian section in heaven. We will all be one. We will all be one. United together through the Lamb and in the Lamb and worshipping the Lamb forever. No more division. Beautiful. Thirdly, we're going to be resurrected and receive new bodies. The church of Jesus Christ and each of his members will be given a brand new body. Now, of course, when you die, you don't get your body straight away. Okay? You've got to wait in line because there's a day, resurrection day, when we all receive. When we pass away, we can talk about this more on another day, but there is a, there is a place called paradise, some call it the... Um, present heaven or paradise and that's where we go when we die as Jesus said to the thief on the cross today you will be with me in paradise there's a lot to that recommend you buy a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn if you haven't already got it great book on heaven but one day we will all receive resurrected bodies that are incorruptible a body like Jesus when he was raised from the dead was it an entirely different body? No. He still had what? He still had the holes where the nails had gone through his hand, didn't he? It was the same body, but different. New. Imperishable. But it was a body. Jesus ate. Jesus drank. Jesus fellowshiped. He could be touched. He could give you a hug. And so when you're in heaven, you'll have a body. You will inhabit space. You will be physical. You will touch things. You will eat things. Praise God. We're going to eat in heaven. I'm so glad about that. You know, when I was a kid, I thought that heaven was going to be pretty boring because I'd be sat on a cloud on my own with a heart and I'd probably have wings, but they wouldn't be real. And it would just be like kind of light, just really bright. You know, but no eating, no drink. We're going to eat and drink and feast in heaven. Hallelujah. Praise God. That's a good word. So you're going to have a resurrected body. Fourthly, we're going to live somewhere. We're just going to have homes. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. We're actually going to take up space somewhere. Where? In the new earth. Revelation 21. I don't know if you call that. It's really interesting. On judgment day, resurrection day, when you receive your new body, you'll also receive a place to live. And that will not be in the clouds, but it will be on a renewed earth. Just as our bodies in this life will decay, and on that day we will receive a new resurrected body, so this earth will decay. We're seeing it, aren't we? We're seeing this slowly happen. This earth will decay. And on that day when Christ returns, it won't just be his people that receive a new body. The earth itself will receive a newness. The earth will be renewed. It'll be everything that it should be. I grew up reading the Chronicles of Narnia. And as a kid, I longed to go to Narnia. Everything seemed right and perfect. And that's in a picture how the new earth will be. It's real. 
It's not imaginary, it's not spiritual, it's physical. And out of the heavens will come the city, the new Jerusalem, out of the present heaven and into the new earth, the capital city, if you will, of the new earth. And we will dwell in that city, that wonderful place. Our life in heaven is going to be every bit as real as this life on earth. Isn't that good? I love that quote from Lord of the Rings where Gandalf and Pippin are in Minas Tirith and the armies of Mordor are attacking and Pippin turns to Gandalf and says, I didn't think it would end this way. Gandalf turns and says, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The grey rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What, Gandalf? See what? White shores. And beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. Pippin says, well, that isn't so bad. And Gandalf says, no. No, it isn't. This is how it will be for us. Death is not the end. You needn't fear the death of brothers and sisters. Fifthly, we're going to reign with Christ. We're actually going to have responsibilities in heaven. Did you know that? It's not going to be boring. It's great news for me. I think I'm borderline ADHD. So I need stuff to do. I get bored quickly. And in heaven, you will not be given the opportunity to be bored. Christ promised that those who are faithful to him in this life are actually going to rule with him. We're going to co-labor with Christ in heaven in ruling stuff. Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Of course, many of Jesus' parables, he speaks about those in the kingdom will be given authority over cities. We're going to rule with Christ. There will be a type of government in the new earth. There will be responsibilities that are given to every saint, to every Christian in heaven. None of you will be sat there twiddling your thumbs. We're going to worship Christ. We're also going to be co-laboring and reigning with Christ. David Lord George, the Welsh politician last century, it's a really funny quote. He said, when I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where time would perhaps be perpetual Sundays. Perpetual services from which there would be no escape. Fear not. You'll not have to put up with this forever. There will be a day when we enjoy the glory of ruling with Christ, with working with Him, with feasting with one another and with Him. Sixthly, sin and sorrow will be no more. We are going to have a memory of things that happen on earth. I think that's clear when we read scripture about the time that is to come, about heaven. There is going to be a memory of things that happened on earth. In Revelation, the martyrs turn to Jesus, to the Lamb, and they say, when will, be, will, will we be avenged for those who martyred us? There's a memory. You will remember things. You will recognize people who you knew on the earth. But there will be no sorrow. Amen. There's not going to be any regrets. There's not going to be any 
remorse, God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Neither will there be any sin in heaven. I find that wonderful. No more wrestling with my sin. Oh God, for that day. When we can lay down the sword of the Spirit. Because it's not going to be a fight with internal corruption anymore. Seventhly, most importantly, God's going to live with us. God is going to live with us in the new Jerusalem. He's present. He is present. E.J. Fortman said, If the blessed are to be endlessly and supremely happy, then they must share in the very life of the triune God, in the divine life that makes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit endlessly and infinitely happy. If you can't picture what it means to live with God, then let me put it very plainly to you. It is endless happiness. Endless joy. That's what it means. God is the Father of lights. He is the one from whom all good things come. There's nothing good in this life that didn't originate from Him. And to live with Him, to share life with Him, is to share joy, to share happiness in a way that you've never felt it, in a way that's not sinful, in a way that's pure, and that can never be exhausted. So ultimately, what does it all mean? It means this. It means that if you are today a Christian, if you are in Christ, if you can say, I am a Christian, I know Jesus is my Lord, is my Savior, I've been saved from sin, then it means that your best days are not behind you, they're ahead of you. Your best days are not behind you, they're ahead of you. The goodness of your future life completely outweighs all of the sufferings of your life in the present. And it means this. It means that your life in this world is nothing but a preparation for the next. This life is God fitting you for the next life. It is God teaching you for the next life. It is God testing you for the next life. He's fitting you for the responsibilities that you'll have in the new earth and that is the life which will define you that is the life where you will live to the full not this life but the next the best days are ahead finally the C.S. Lewis in the last battle said the term is over the holidays have begun the dream is ended this is the morning you know that end of term feeling when you were a kid last day of summer term you get home from school. That's the feeling that you should have as a Christian. Living in the last days and awaiting future glory. One day this life will end and you, if you are in Christ, have promised the future life better than I can ever express. Better than you could ever imagine. Let's stand. Brothers and sisters, if I can encourage you in one thing today, is to drink deeply on the truth of Scripture about what is to come, about your future destiny, about the future of the church. 
drink those things in. Do not be preoccupied with the trials and struggles of this life. Don't let them weigh you down. I get trapped in that so often, of having a short-sightedness and thinking only about my life right now, about my troubles, about my problems, about how I'm failing in every single... I always feel like this. The enemy gets you, doesn't he? He makes you feel like you're trapped. Like all that matters is your little world right here. Well, it's not true. There's a world beyond. You've been called for greater things. The best days are ahead of you. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up hope. Don't let go of God's promises over your life. Let's pray. Father God, we glory in what you said about the future of your church. And I pray right now, Father, that you would really just emboss them on our hearts. The truth about what will come. The truth about heaven. The truth about living with you. The truth that whatever we might be facing in this life, however difficult it might be, those trials will one day end. Those physical conditions that we're living with, whether sicknesses or pain in the body, there will come a day when those things will end. The sorrows and the sadness and the grief that some of you are carrying in this place. There will come a day when those things will end. The regrets, the remorse for things that you've done that you know are bad. There'll be a day when you don't feel remorse and regret and guilt anymore. So Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. As we focus on these truths, you would cause us to step into freedom today, to step into what you have promised and to let go of fear, to let go of our restraint and to truly believe what you've promised. Amen. Let's, let's see together.